Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Resilient Self. We're here to talk about the human experience, mental health, wellness, relationships, and of course, how we bounce back when things don't go as planned. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Resilient Self Podcast. I am Chris Neal, here with you this week to talk about things you need to know about how your brain manages stress. At its core, stress is a good thing. Stress is what motivates us. It it energizes us to meet a challenge of some sort. And uh, anxiety is when we, of course, get too much of that going on and we're not able to manage it for for optimal uh, benefit. There's a couple of great books I'm going to recommend to you on these topics. The first is by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. It's called The Upside of Stress, and she does a really nice job of talking about how we can actually keep that stress in control and use it to really be our best rather than let us let it overwhelm us. Another with one of my favorite titles ever for a book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, by Dr. Robert Sapolsky. He talks a lot about the role of stress in the evolution of humankind and just some really interesting discussions. So both of those books, super informative, really entertaining, and very helpful. You can find both of them. Uh, You don't need to, if you're driving or doing something, you don't need to stop what you're doing. Just head over to theresilientself.com when you get a chance and click on our book list link on the front page, and it will take you to a whole list, which is a cornucopia of book awesomeness. And you can click on any of those that look interesting to you, and it'll kick you right over to Amazon, and you can have your very own copy. Now, there are some foundational things about brain functioning that I think are really helpful, and that's really what we're here to talk about today. We understand there's a difference between stress and anxiety. Stress is there to protect us. Anxiety is when that gets out of control. Let's talk a little bit about the things you need to know about your brain and how it manages information and how it may create states of calm or stress in you. The first thing to remember is that your brain has a negativity bias to it. Now, sometimes we will hear through different sources, oh, we're designed to be happy. That is absolutely not true. If you get completely neutral input into the brain, uh, the brain is about seven times more likely to interpret that as threatening or negative than it is positive or safe. And so that's important to know because even when negative or uh, neutral information comes into the brain, we still have a pretty good chance of interpreting it as a threat. And your brain basically has one job, survival of the species. There are lots of ways that that shows up in our daily lives. Some of them are really helpful. Some of them seem really counterproductive at times. But that's what the brain is there for, ultimately. Now, the brain helped cavemen survive a fairly simple but pretty dangerous world, right? Fight the tiger, run away, get the antelope, procreate, you know, the the basic things that that are the, the core of, of human existence. And the brain did a really uh, pretty, pretty good job of, of helping caveman do that. Now, the brain is also there to help us survive a complex and dangerous world that we live in now. So both worlds were dangerous, but ours is notably more complex. The brain and body haven't really changed much in about 40,000 years. And so we are all living in a modern world with caveman brains and bodies. We are designed really well to live in that world 40,000 years ago. The modern world that we built for ourselves, not so much. I guess the good news is that by the year 42,023, humanity will have caught up to today, which I don't think any of us will be around to see that, but it's nice to think about. 
when information enters the brain, it, it gets to the thalamus and it splits. It takes the low road and the high road is what we'll call it. The low road goes straight from the thalamus to the amygdala, which you, you probably recognize as the, the fear center in the brain. The amygdala is, is one of the parts of the brain that really focuses on, on fear-based memory and, and recall and that sort of thing. When it goes to the high road, at the same time, it goes to the thalamus, and then it goes to the neocortex, which is all of the decision-making and processing parts of the brain, and then it gets to the amygdala. And so the low road is all reflex and reaction, and then the high road is measured response. So the high road, we, we often refer to as the mammalian brain, and that's where higher-order brain functions happen, cognition, spatial reasoning, language. And this is the part of the brain that allows us to respond instead of react. The good news is that this part of the brain is has fairly robust analytical capabilities. It has a big catalog of pictures to compare new information to. The brain is kind of on a match-mismatch system when it takes in new information. Hey, does, do I have something that looks like this in my catalog? Do I recognize this? Okay, and if I do, then we're going to pair these things up and believe that that's what it is. And the neocortex is really good at that. The downside is that it's one of the slower functions in the brain. And so we want to keep that keep that in our awareness because the low road geographically in the brain is the parts closer to the brainstem, uh, which when, when he, the human brain was developing was obviously one of the first parts to develop. And then the brain grew up and out as we moved through the generations. And this is what we call the brain's fear circuitry. And this is adaptive to help us survive the world. And so that part of the brain has crude analytical abilities. It does not have a lot of pictures to compare it to. And so that part of the brain might confuse, say, a stick with a snake. So if you're walking through a field and you catch a stick out of the corner of your eye, well, if your brain you know, flips through and on page three it says, ah, snake, then you're going to respond in that way. And then eventually the, the neocortex kicks in and say, nope, that's a stick. You can quit crying now. That part of the brain, not very analytical. However, it is very, very fast. When the reptilian brain sees something that it perceives as a threat, it triggers what we call the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system. Now, that doesn't feel very sympathetic, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but that is a very efficient means of surviving a world with lions and tigers and bears. Friends, we hope you're enjoying all the content here at The Resilient Self. If you're wondering how you can support our work on the show, we've made it super easy. You can check out the show notes or head over to our website, theresilientself.com, and click on the link that says, buy me a coffee. Now, you're not actually buying me a real cup of coffee, but through a one-time donation or an ongoing membership, you're helping with the development and production costs of the show. When you take this step, you're helping us bring the resilient self to others all over the world. So if you want to help us pay it forward, this is the easiest way. And please know that we deeply appreciate your support at any level. Sympathetic activation prepares us to fight the tiger or run away. Things that happen include heart rate and respiration accelerating, uh, pupils dilate, blood flows from the extremities to the core, which is why we often get cold, clammy hands when we're stressed out. Also, one that doesn't get talked about as much, auditory exclusion. If you're fighting the tiger, you don't need to be focused on the owl screeching in the trees. You need to be focused on the tiger. I think sometimes also when we're in conflict, sometimes we don't even necessarily hear the things we need to hear when we're, when we're in conflict. Uh, conflict conversations. The fear centers in the brain tend to believe what you tell it. So the movies you make in your mind are 
documentaries. If you play out a scenario in your mind, there is a part of your brain that believes that, uh, which is why self-talk becomes very, very important for us. For example, have you ever had an argument in your mind that never actually happened? Can you remember actually getting physically riled up when you think through it? That's that process in action right there. So self-talk, gratitude, supremely important when it comes to managing the fear circuitry in our brain. Also, to some extent, this part of the brain doesn't necessarily distinguish threat level very well. Everything's a tiger. Even a tennis ball that comes over the fence at the park, rationally, once you eventually look at that, you go, oh, it was a tennis ball. That's not going to kill me. But in, in that time between the fast processing of the, of the reptilian brain and the slow processing of the mammalian brain, your brain goes, ah, tiger, and your body responds. So your brain skews negative, and the fastest, most efficient part of your brain doesn't distinguish between threat and safety very well. It believes everything you tell it. It thinks everything is tiger. And by the way, that's the part that's talking to your body. So how do we get through the day without losing our minds? Because when we think of it this way, I know it sounds really scary. I've got to say, I think coping skills are only marginally helpful. Because by the time you think of using a coping skill, you're already triggered. If you're saying, okay, I'm stressed, use my Brock's breathing or do my thought replacement, that's fine. But you've already been triggered at that point. Your body has already responded. You're already anxious. Now, things like breathing and thought replacement and all these other things do have a role. They do help us calm down after the fact, which is a good thing. I'm a fan of calming down after the fact. We actually have different kinds of arousal, uh, and when I use that word in this context, I'm meaning mind-body activation, how amped up we are, and, you know, either physically or mentally or whatever. And so let's think of this in two ways. One is what we call state arousal, which is in the moment. It's the sine wave of your day, okay? So maybe you're calm eating breakfast, and then you're driving on the road to work, and suddenly someone almost runs you off the road. Well, you're going to go up, and then you get to work. You calm down. Things slow down, uh, and then you get bored, so you kind of hit the bottom of that sine wave, um, and, and, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down. That's just everybody's day through, throughout our day. And then we have what we call trait arousal, which is simplistically put, kind of your idling speed. And that's not an up and down throughout your day thing. That's that's kind of generally how you roll. Think of it sort of like one of those big trampolines that people put in their yard. If you tighten all those springs really tight, and then you get up on a ladder and you drop a bowling ball on that really tight trampoline, well, that ball's going to bounce high. It's physics. And I think it's also psychology, because I think that when that trampoline is pulled really tight, then we tend to be more reactive to things. Those those uh, waves in the sine wave of our day tend to, tend to be much higher and lower. Uh, whereas if you go down and you can loosen all the, all the springs on that trampoline, make it kind of floppy and loose, you drop the same bowling ball from the same height, from the same ladder, then the ball's going to go thud and not bounce quite as high, which uh, emotionally would kind of be the goal. The goal is to lower our trait arousal levels. When we can lower our trait arousal levels, then we stop the brain from kind of hijacking our day. How do we do that? How do we lower trait arousal so that our state arousal doesn't bounce quite so high and get us so amped up when things happen? I realize that's a longer process, so we have to be patient and persistent. Two of my least favorite words, but <laughs> there it is. Breathing and self-talk, when those become a function of practice instead of used as a rescue, then they become a lot more powerful. So that's why I continue to be a staunch advocate for daily meditation work, even two to five minutes a day. If you can spend a little time with intentional breathing, 
Also, positive self-talk, compassion, journaling can all be very, very helpful. But when we can make those integral to our day, when they, when we're not just doing them to kind of pull us off the ledge, what we call a rescue, what it does is it gets that mind, body, spirit ecosystem working together a lot more effectively. In addition to breathing and, and positive self-talk and, and gratitude, anything we can do to mobilize as many areas of that mind, body, spirit, relational ecosystem as possible at the same time. The more of those things we can do at once, we get this really robust, deeply personal experience that I think connects mind and body in ways that helps us manage stress much, much better. It makes us less reactive, more responsive. It just makes us better. So some things on that list include contemplative practice things, meditation, yoga, if prayer is is part of your your uh, personal belief, then prayer, exercise, um, sex, any of those, uh, if you're doing them right, are activities that get mind, body, spirit working together, and it, it just gets the body working more as a unit rather than uh, disparate processes. Practice-oriented activities to mobilize the ecosystem. We're talking about a complex problem here, and it requires complex solutions. Um, there's no magic pixie dust here. I think we can train the mind. Uh, meditation, gratitude journals, prayer, those kinds of things. From a physical standpoint, um, which sometimes is a is a m- much smoother entry into the system, sometimes I find that if we're struggling to talk about our feelings or talk about our experience, sometimes if we will find some ways to calm the body, then the mind will follow, and the emotions can sometimes follow as well. Vitamin D is your friend. Uh, the more we read about, the more we study sunlight and vitamin D, the more we know there are just a, there's a range of of positive effects, uh, not only physically but also mental health effects. Diet and exercise. I know your doctor tells you that all the time, but they're right. Diet and exercise, because again, the more physically healthy you are, the better chance you have at uh, sustaining some good emotional health as well. Heart rate variability training. So. When you breathe in, your heart rate is actually supposed to speed up a little bit. That's that's a healthy thing. When you exhale, your heart rate is supposed to decelerate a little bit. And the difference between the, the faster and the slower part is what we call heart rate variability. And we like really robust variability. Uh, that can just make us more resilient, uh, both physically and, um, and psychologically. Now, there are lots of ways to do that. Just good old-fashioned meditation and breathing practice are a great way. Calming the self, uh, being in as good physical uh, condition as we can be. There's also a device, it's called a heart math device. And they have uh, a little device that clips to your ear and there's an app on your phone. You can actually go through training and you can actually teach your body to increase the variability. Uh, we're training the heart to speed up a little more and slow down a little more, which ultimately is is a really good thing for us. So friends, just to wrap up, your, your brain is trying to protect you even in the multitude of times that it doesn't really feel like it. When we can get mind and body working in synchrony, we optimize for whatever world we live in. So thanks for being here today. Uh, Don't forget to check out the website where we can uh, find show notes, previous episodes, written articles, links to our social, and also some ways to support the show. If you're inclined to do that, we certainly appreciate anything you'd like to do along those lines. It helps us be better and it helps us reach more people when uh, our our listeners have a skin in the game and help us with uh, production costs and those kinds of things. But that is, of course, a personal choice and uh, anything you're willing to do, we we will be grateful for. Uh, That is at theresilientself.com. Links to all of those things. 
Special thanks to Ted Hammond for our theme music. You can find Ted's music through the links on our show notes where we can either take you over to iTunes or to Amazon Music and you can get your own copy of Ted's wonderful music. Friends, thanks for being here today. I will see you next time on The Resilient Self. The Resilient Self is a production of Insight Media, LLC. The information presented on the show and at theresilientself.com is intended to educate and entertain and should not be considered as legal, medical, or psychological advice or as therapy of any kind. The information presented should not be used to diagnose or treat any psychological, psychiatric, or medical condition. While we make every effort to present accurate and insightful information, the host, guests, and Insight Media LLC make no warranty that the information presented here will be applicable in your situation or location. Opinions expressed in the show do not represent those of Insight Media LLC, their ownership, or employees. 